Matthew 10, 34 to 39, part seven in our series. I did not come, do not think I came on the earth to bring peace. He did not come to bring peace. Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to give us a heart that has full devotion to Christ, Christ as our head, our master, our Lord, our redeemer, our savior, the only one in whom we should put our hope. We pray, Lord, that we'll have this kind of faith so that even if those who are near us, our most beloved among us in our families, reject us, that we will not be discouraged, but we will indeed seek our Hope, seek for our consolation in you and through your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the ministry of your Spirit in us. We pray, Lord, that we will understand this, and may it be fully in our mind, fully in our heart, fully in our life, that we might live accordingly. Lord, in this series we have studied, we have seen this as the case from the very beginning of time. And Lord, now as we see in the New Testament what our Lord and Savior meant, we pray, Lord, we will take it to heart, we will hold it fast, and we will persevere until the end. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The correct interpretation of this passage, Matthew 10, 34 to 39, has indeed to do with the fact that Jesus is not bringing us a sure peace between family members when there is a believer and an unbeliever, when there is sin involved. When that comes to a head, when that comes to the fork in the road, we must know which part, which direction to go. And Jesus is teaching us in Matthew 10, 34 to 39, that the only way we should look, the only direction we should go is in this road or on this highway is the highway of holiness. The highway of holiness is the highway of Christ. We are to submit ourselves to Christ and Christ alone. That is the peace Jesus did not guarantee to us among our loved ones, among family members, among our relations, our relatives. Nothing like that is guaranteed. We have to be fully convinced, fully devoted to following Christ whenever sin is involved. And if this sin is in our beloved son or daughter, our beloved father or mother, our beloved brother or sister, our beloved aunt, our beloved cousin, our beloved nephews and nieces, it doesn't matter where that sin might be. Whenever we know of that, we must follow Christ. That is the word that he's preaching here to us. We have seen in previous uh, examples, previous messages on this subject, that this is a truth throughout the Old Testament. 
There are many, many examples throughout the Old Testament, which we did not even exhaust in our previous studies. Last time we saw that on the lips of Jesus Christ himself, our Lord and Savior, that Jesus said in many examples from Matthew to Luke that this is to be the case. We should not be surprised. We should not be shocked. We should not be appalled. We should not fall away when we hear these words because they came from our Lord himself. This is the Jesus that people do not know about. This is the Jesus that people hate. The moment we say this about Jesus Christ, that Jesus said he came to bring division, disharmony between members of one's own family, they say, that's not the Jesus I know. That's not the Jesus I love. I don't believe in that Jesus. I did not sign up for that. That's how they react. But they don't know the right Jesus. They have another Jesus they have a different spirit and a different gospel, 2 Corinthians 11, 3-4. They are indeed not believing in the true grace of Christ, but a different gospel, which is really not another. Galatians 1, 6-10. We must know the true Jesus and follow this true Jesus the way he told us. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Luke 6, 46. So let us do what he says and follow him faithfully. We continue in our series into New Testament examples. A couple of more remaining with our Lord himself, two or three with himself, and then further into the New Testament. We pick it up in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. Luke 18, 18 to 30. Luke 18, 18 introduces us to this encounter Jesus had with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler. He had wealth, he had youth, and he had prominence or reputation. He was a ruler among the people. So this rich young ruler approaches Christ. Christ, he responds to the rich young ruler and tells him what he needs to hear. But he doesn't like it, and he walks away. He does not believe in the gospel. When he does not believe in the gospel, and Jesus makes a comment about how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, his disciples, Jesus' own disciples, are astonished at this, and we pick it up at verse 26. When they are amazed that it's very difficult for a rich man to go to heaven, 18.26 to 30. And they who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things impossible with men are possible with God. And Peter said, Behold, we have left our own things and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times as much in, at this time and in the age to come eternal life. What is the promise here? That is, when we leave house, wife, brothers, parents, children, why would we leave? Because they reject us. They throw us out. They threaten to kill us. They threaten to harm us. 
correct? Or if it's a husband-wife relationship, a divorce happens. What if things like that happen? What are we supposed to do? Not grow weary in doing good, but notice, he encourages us that we shall receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. For example, in the body of Christ, in the average local church, in the average faithful local church, you will have more brothers and sisters than you ever had in your own family who will pick up, uh, who will answer the phone when you are in a time of need, who will show up at your doorstep, who will show up in an emergency. They'll come to help you. They will pray for you. They are like-minded. They have values that are founded on the Bible, biblical values. Just as we do, they do. So we have more brothers and sisters than we have in our own natural families, correct? That's what he's saying here at this time, in this age. But in the age to come, we will not only have all of them, but eternal life. And who can walk away if he's sober? Who can walk away from eternal life? The rich young ruler was unsober. He was intoxicated by his wealth, by his youth, and by his reputation. And he walked away. But we should not walk away whenever we have to meet the fork in the road. Continue on the path of Christ. John chapter 7, another example related to Christ or the words of Christ. In John 7, 1 to 9, John 7, 1 to 9, a feast is about to take place. A feast is about to take place. The Feast of Booths. And we notice this interaction between Jesus and his brothers. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast, because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. Well, the brothers in verses 3 and 4, they do not believe in him. And if their words were unclear to us, verse 5 makes it clear. The Apostle John says, not even his brothers were believing in him. His brothers at this point during his life, most of his life, they did not believe in him. Eventually they will. But at this point, they do not believe in him. In fact, they are mocking him. They're ridiculing him in verses 3 and 4. They're sinning against the Lord of heaven right here in mockery. And Jesus answers them. He answers them. He refutes them as to what his intentions are. But also, why is it that the world loves his brothers, his unbelieving brothers? Verse 7, this is the reason 
The world loves his unbelieving brothers. Verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Therein is the problem. The moment we say to our brothers, our sisters, our fathers, our mothers, our sons and daughters, our relatives of any kind, the moment we say to them, what you're doing is evil. What you're doing is a sin. Don't you know that you are blaspheming God? Don't you know that that is an abomination? When we say something like that to our relatives, what will happen? They will hate us. Just as Jesus' brothers up to this point have hated him because he testified that their deeds were evil and therefore it aroused their hatred against him. John 19. John chapter 19, verses 26 to 27. John 19, 26. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. The disciple whom Jesus loved is John, the apostle who wrote this book of John. This is the one that was the closest friend, companion of Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord, when he was on the earth. John, the apostle, the disciple whom he loved, the beloved disciple. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he knows the kind of love, devotion, faithfulness, diligence John would show to Jesus' own mother. So he has John take care of Jesus' mother from that day forward. John, not one of Jesus' own brothers, but John, John who is not a relative of Christ, taking care of Jesus' mother. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Acts 1, 14. This is between the Ascension and the day of Pentecost, about a 10-day period. One fourteen says, These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The mother of Jesus and his brothers. All are now assembled. At this point, Jesus' brothers are believers, awaiting the day of Pentecost. And later, in the book of James, James was a brother of Christ, the natural, biological, blood brother of Christ. And also Jude. Jude, in the book of Jude, was a natural, biological, blood brother of Christ. They became apostles who wrote books of the New Testament, James and Jude. Up to this point, though, as far as we understand in the biblical narrative, in the book of John, chapter 7, the brothers were not believers, but by the time of Acts, chapter 1, verse 14, they became believers. Now they are working for Christ, but before they were working against 
Christ. But meantime, did Jesus concede? Did Jesus compromise with them? No. He held his ground and told them the truth until they were granted the repentance that leads to life. Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Acts 12, verse 1. Now, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. He had James, the brother of John. This same John is John the Apostle. And John the Apostle was one of the sons of Zebedee. James and John were two of the twelve sons of Zebedee. At this point, James is put to death with a sword. What could John the Apostle have done by this point? He could have said, he could have said, mercy, mercy. He could have said to the king, he could have said to others, listen, I give it up. I give up. I don't want what happened to my brother to happen to me. I give up the faith. He could have, from this example, walked away. But he didn't walk away. He knew that James held fast to the faith, and John also will emulate his brother, his godly brother, who was martyred here by the wicked Herod. Instead of walking away from the faith, instead of denying Christ, he maintained faith in Christ because he saw the example of his godly brother put to death by evil Herod. Acts chapter 16, 16 verse 1. Acts 16 verses 1 to 5. The example of Timothy and Timothy's mother. 16 and father, 16, 1. And he came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him and took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. The mother was a believer, the father was an unbeliever. We'll learn later in the book of Timothy that his mother and grandmother, being believers, taught Timothy contrary to the religion, contrary to the beliefs of Timothy's own father, who was a Greek. And what do the Greeks believe? They believe in all the gods. They believe in a pantheon of gods. They believe in idolatry. They have their magnificent temples to their gods and goddesses, correct? That's what the Greeks believe. They believe that the stars, the planets are gods, and they worship them. That was Timothy's father. But contrary to that is his mother, a believer. She does not believe like her husband. She believes in the gospel of Christ. Timothy does not believe like his father. He believes in the gospel of Christ. He's a believer, and such 
sincere and diligent believer that Paul wanted Timothy to be with him on his many trips, his many missionary journeys. Acts chapter 23, 23 and verse 16. Acts 23, 16. We have a relative of the Apostle Paul assisting him. The Jews, they have death and murder in their hearts, and they are plotting with a conspiracy, a plot to assassinate the Apostle Paul. But Paul is in the protection of the Romans. Being a Roman citizen, the Romans are protecting him, at least up to this point. 23.16, who helps Paul? But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. And then what happens? Paul takes his nephew, the son of his sister, he takes his nephew, they go to the commander, the nephew, as an eyewitness, tells the commander what he heard, and the commander, from that evidence, protects Paul even further, protects him from an ambush to assassinate Paul. This is the son of Paul's sister helping Paul. Well, we don't know if he was a believer or true believer, but at least he had enough decency and enough humanity in him. He had enough civility in him, if he weren't a believer. He had enough of that to help Paul instead of working against Paul. Because he could have, and the sister could have, worked together and said, listen, Paul, you're a troublemaker and you're getting all of us in the family in trouble. We don't like this. All the Jews are against us and we don't like this. So Paul quit. Paul, stop it. Stop being so forceful. Stop being so staunch in your faith and preaching Christ, Christ alone, because the Jews hate us. Well, the nephew and the sister could have said all of that. And at this point, when Paul's life was in jeopardy, they could have did, did the opposite. The son of Paul's sister could have helped the Jews instead of helping Paul. But he didn't. He helped Paul because Paul was preaching the truth. But our relatives will snitch on us. Many of them, the unbelieving ones, they will snitch on us. They will call us troublemakers. They will even report us to the authorities. It happens all around the world. Let's continue into the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Verses 1 to 16. Conflicts in marriage. Conflicts in marriage. And a few of these main ones are mentioned here. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. By this, But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not send his wife away. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy." Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Verse 1, good for a man not to touch a woman. It's good, but, verse 2, Immorality, sexual sins occur. Sexual immorality occurs. Because sexual immorality occurs, each man ought to have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Own wife and own husband. That's the way it should be. Correct? But once it happens because of sexual sin, then in the marriage, verses 3 to 5, Verses five, uh, 3 to 5, in marriage, the husband is to fulfill his duty to his wife and the wife to her husband. What is the duty he means here? What duty does the husband have? What duty does the wife have? It is verse 4, three and, uh, 4 and 5. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What's happening here? Sometimes wife will withhold sexual relations from the husband. And sometimes the husband will, with, will withhold it from the wife. Sometimes in marriage, the husband has greater desires and desire for frequency than the wife. But the wife says, no, 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 no. She shouldn't be doing that. But sometimes the wife has a greater desire than the husband. And the wife says, no, not today. I'm too tired, whatever. I don't want to do it. Not today. So when the husband says that to the wife, he's doing wrong too. He's sinning. And what happens when either the husband or the wife do any of this? It causes conflict. It causes conflict in the marriage. So he says in verse 5, stop depriving one another. Stop doing that. You're sinning because the purpose of marriage is that. What do you want, wife? You want your husband to go to a harlot? To pay a prostitute? What, husband? Do you want your wife to find another man? You want her to go commit adultery? You, we don't want that to happen. That's verses 1 and 2. 
We don't want that to happen. We want there to be a wholesome, sound, healthy marriage where we are helping one another, supplying one another's needs, which is God-ordained. God meant it to be this way in marriage. So verse 5, stop depriving one another. Isn't that a command? It's a command for both husband and wife to obey. That's why husband and wife should openly talk, openly have this conversation, and if necessary, remind each other of the promises that they have made on this matter so that there is no conflict, no tension in marriage. Because he says also what might happen. Satan might tempt us because of our lack of self-control. Satan tempt us to sin because of the lack of self-control. So avoid this tension. Now this tension can happen with a believing husband and a believing wife. It can happen with an unbelieving husband and an unbelieving wife. And it can also happen when one of the spouses is a believer and the other is an unbeliever. It could happen in any of those scenarios, but it should not happen. It should not happen at all. Now, the concession is that if you decide, well, for a couple of days or for three days or for a week, we're, we're going to withhold it from each other because I want to fast and pray. If you agree to that, then fine. But don't do it too long, he says. He says, come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You can't say it's going to be for months or six months or a year or two years. You can't say it that way. It should not be like that because of Satan and sin. But each one has a gift. One to be married and another to be unmarried. That's verse 7. Widows and the unmarried single men and women. Verse 8, he says, it's good if you remain unmarried. I am unmarried, Paul says. It's good if you remain that way. However, it won't be that way for most people. It won't be that way for most people, men and women. Verse 9, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Burn with lust and therefore sin by lust and sexual immorality. He says, don't let that happen. That's a source. That, is, that right there, verses 1 to 9, a source of conflict between husband and wife. May that not happen. Verse 10. Now from 10 and following, he's going to talk about divorce. Divorce. Verse 10, but to the married I give instruction, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. The wife should not leave her husband. Whatever your conflicts, don't leave. Verse 11, but if she does leave, let her remain unmarried. This is both believer and unbeliever. The believer especially should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not send his wife away. And the same would happen there. If the husband sins by divorcing his wife, he should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to his wife. The reciprocal is the, the case in verses 10 and 11. Divorce should not be pursued. But if it is, remain unmarried. And if possible, be reconciled 
to one's spouse. Now, believer and unbeliever, verses 12 to 16. What if the conflict in marriage has to do with one being a believer and the other an unbeliever? Then he says that if that's the case, the believer should not seek for a divorce because the spouse is an unbeliever. But if the unbeliever does not want to remain married with the believer, then the believer may say, okay, then go ahead with the divorce. It's on you, not me. I wanted to remain married. You did not. You are the one that started the divorce, initiated divorce. You want the divorce, so let it happen. Whether the believing husband to an unbelieving wife or believing wife to the unbelieving husband. There's no guarantee, no guarantee that the believer will save the unbeliever. But meantime, why remain why remain married? He says for two reasons. So that the unbeliever is sanctified and the children are sanctified. Unbeliever and children may be sanctified. That is, have access to the truth of the word of God and the way that God expects us to live in this world. That is the sanctification he means. He doesn't mean a guarantee of salvation for your unbelieving wife or a guarantee of salvation for your unbelieving children. He's not speaking of that. He's speaking of how we ought to approach the marriage and the family as believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 16, the apostle teaches this practice and doctrine of covering the hair for the woman whenever she prays and prophesies. Covering the hair of the woman whenever she prays and prophesies, as he says in verse 4, while praying or prophesying. This passage is a source, source of much conflict in marriage. But what's supposed to happen? Whether it's the wife who wants to do it and the husband who says, no, 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 don't do that. That's crazy. Or, more often, the husband says, it makes sense, it's right here in Scripture, it's in the New Testament, and there's a lengthy passage explaining it with many theological, not cultural, but many theological reasons. So wife, please do it, please consider it, please study it, please pray about it. If the husband says that, typically the wife will rise up against him. She'll kick and scream against it and say, no, you, you want me to be your doormat. You want me to submit to you. You want me to do something that is unseemly. Nobody does it today. It's unfashionable. You're going to mess up my hair. That's what they say. What's the husband supposed to do in this conflict? He's supposed to stick with Scripture, is he not? Is he not supposed to patiently teach her what the Scripture says and have her held accountable between herself and God. Meantime, he's supposed to do what's right. Tell her the truth about this doctrine and practice. That's what he's supposed to do. Tell her the truth. Even if she's going to rise up in resistance and say, well, I'm not going to go to that church. 
Let's find another church that doesn't do that. Even if that scenario arises, he needs to stick with Scripture. Partly, you know, if the husband compromises with his wife and and says, well, let's go to another church that does not practice head coverings, hair coverings, then what's going to happen to the husband when he's worshiping in that environment? He's going to be distracted by all the beautiful women with their beautiful hair sitting in front of him. And thereby sin against God under severe temptation. His thoughts are going to be distracted when they're supposed to be worshiping God. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 33. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. More source of conflict. Why so? Verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. When a wife hears that, an unbelieving wife hears that, she says, no, no, no. Even many who claim to be believers, when they hear that, they say, no, no. The Bible, it would never teach women and wives to be doormats. No, we're not supposed to be submissive. We believe in equality. Feminism teaches equality, right? Even evangelical feminism, that is, evangelical Protestants who claim to be Christians, they say feminism is biblical. But it's not biblical. And when they rise up and reject submission or obedience to their husbands as the head of the wife, when they scoff at it, they chafe at it, they walk away from it, they rebel against it, what's the husband supposed to do? Maintain his ground. Calmly, lovingly, patiently teach her, maintain his ground. Do what's right. Expect that of her. What about the husband, though? The husband, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. When the husband hears, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church, he might criticize that. He might say, no, 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 no. No, I married her, yes, but I'm not going to love her like that. You don't know what she's like. I'm not going to love her like that. No. He might say, that's too far. God, that's not for me. It's not for me. I'm not going to be that kind of a husband. And this is to the extent that he teaches her, guides her, and causes her to seek for perfection so that she has no spot, verse 27, no spot nor wrinkle, no such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless, cleansing her with the word of God. Husbands will say, no, I'm not a good reader. No, I'm not a good teacher. No, I'm not a good leader. No, I'm not a good speaker. No, nobody listens to me. Nobody respects me and my family. Well, just do what's right to the best of your ability by the grace of God and leave the rest to God. But do not compromise. Both wives don't reject and husbands do not compromise. That's Ephesians 5. How about chapter 6? More conflict in the family. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father 
and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Children, obey your parents. No. And then now the laws of many countries are against the parents and supposedly favoring the children, where children can rise up in legal ways against their own parents. Children will say, no. They'll say it when they are one year old, two years old, three years old, 10 years old, 15 years old. They will say it. No, I'm not going to obey you. No. They will get their way, want their way, but they're not supposed to have their way. And then what's going to happen when the parents say no to them? When the parents start disciplining them, when the parents start spanking them, they're going to cry. And there's going to be conflict. But that's supposed to happen. The children are supposed to obey and the parents are supposed to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But also, verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That is, fathers can be unreasonable. They can be highly demanding. Sometimes that happens. They are unreasonable. They expect things of their children that are unreasonable. They don't teach them. They aren't patient with them. They don't spend time to explain. They're not loving them. They're not teaching them the word. And what will happen to the children? They will be provoked to anger, which is a sin. It's a sin if the fathers behave this way. Turn now to Colossians, Colossians 3, Colossians 3.18, Colossians 3.18 to 21, 3.18, wives be subject to your own husbands, uh, to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, husbands love your wives and do not be embittered against them, children obey, uh, be obedient to your parents in all things for this is well pleasing to the Lord, fathers do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. Here is, in summary, the source of conflict, but also the remedy, the resolution to conflict. Wives to be in subjection, as is fitting in the Lord, that is, especially if they are claiming to be Christians. Husbands love wives, do not be embittered against them. Well, they're not doing everything I tell them to do. Well, if they are sinning, then it's on them. But don't be embittered against them. Children, obey your parents in all things. This is well-pleasing to the Lord. All things that are true and good and godly, not sinful things. Verse 21, fathers, do not exasperate. That's similar to Ephesians 6, verse 4. Do not discourage them. Do not frustrate them that they may not lose heart. I could never, I can never please my father. That should not be a thought in the mind of the children because then they will lose heart. They should not lose heart. Turn now to the book of Timothy, the book of Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 
chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 15. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctification with self-restraint. Sources of conflict here. Here in verse, verses 9 and 10, women should be clothed with good works, not cosmetics and clothing, meaning not with gaudy, expensive, luxurious cosmetics and clothing and immodestly worn. Immodest, expensive clothing and jewelry. This is what happens typically because women normally have this carnal desire to be appreciated for their beauty. They want other women and they want men and many men to compliment them for their beauty. And how do they increase their beauty? By showing more of their skin and by putting on lots of jewelry and wearing costly garments, cosmetics. This is how they do it. Everybody knows that. Women know that. That's why they do it. And many times they're encouraged to do that by the men in their family, but they shouldn't be doing it. Rather, their clothing should be good works or godliness, verse 10, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Okay, then, if this is the way women ought to be, especially Christian women ought to be, who's going to make sure that that happens? Often, they're not going to be the first ones to notice that the Bible teaches this. It's going to be the men in their life. It's going to be their fathers. It's going to be their husbands. It's going to be their brothers. It might be their cousin brothers. It's going to be some man in their life who says, listen, sister, listen, wife, you're exposing yourself and you're showing yourself to be immodest and indiscreet. This is what you're doing. And when you do it, you are causing severe temptations in all the men all around you, wherever you go, whether in private or public. It has to stop. We want you to be a chaste virgin until you are married and then marry a godly man who knows what virtues to see in a woman, a godly woman. That's what we want of you. The moment that conversation starts, what's going to happen? Fights, conflict, verbal Verbal bombs going back and forth between the men and the women. But that's what God says here. And even in the local church and the teaching and authority, it ought to reside with the man, not the woman. The qualified man, which is described in chapter 3. The qualified man in the local church teaching and guiding the local church. And also verse 15. Children. What? Women are to bear children? 
Many women say no to that. They hate that thought and that responsibility, but it should not be the case, according to godliness in verse 15. Okay, how about chapter 4? 4, verse 7. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. When the average woman hears verse 7, it will grate against her. It will be like scratching one's fingernails on a black chalkboard. That's the way verse 7 reads, when the average woman reads it. Because the apostles saying by the Holy Spirit that worldly fables, false doctrines, are fit only for old women. But it's true. That's what happens. That's how women, both young and old, they are easily manipulated. But when they're old, this is even more of a temptation. So they need to be guided by the truth. First telling the truth and then living accordingly. Then 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy, oh, sorry, sorry, I missed one. That is 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 16. 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 16. Widows who are widows indeed are to be helped by the local church after the widow's own family helps her. The widow's own family must help her, then the church. That's the gist of 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 16. The fact that that should be the case is in verse 8. One place is verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's how it should happen. But if we expect that to happen, inevitably there's going to be some conflict in that family. What do you mean? The church is supposed to help. And we live in a time where everybody feels entitled and all of those who have means indulge those who do not have means without teaching them the proper biblical prescription to their dilemmas. That's the problem these days. But in verse 8 it says, one's own family has his own household. He should provide for his own. And if he does not, he denies the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Moreover, then when a widow is to be helped, are we supposed to help wanton widows? Wanton widows? Ungodly widows? Or godly widows? It says, verses 9 and 10, Godly ones. Let a widow be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. So the widows of age and the widows who are godly, they are the ones who are candidates for help from the church. But not young widows. Not young widows. Look at this, 11 and following. 
11 to 15. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. And at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Well, who follows Satan? Well, these young widows who have made a pledge to remain single, yet they want to break that pledge or oath or vow before God and get married. So they're breaking their oath before God, thus incurring condemnation, because they have set aside their previous pledge. So when a young widow's husband dies, she should be sober-minded in how she handles her affairs now, being left alone in life. She should pray for and seek for a godly man to marry. And he says so. Instead of sinning, as he describes in verse 13, being a troublemaker with the mouth and feet. Verse 15, Therefore I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Because those who disobey this follow Satan, verse 15 says. Those who are not following Satan Get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. To the feminist ear, to the carnal ear, this is rejected. They despise this teaching, but not to those whose heart is right before the Lord. 2 Timothy 1, 2 Timothy 1 verse 5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. We have godly grandmother, godly mother, Lois and Eunice, teaching Timothy, contrary, remember we read Acts 16, 1 to 5, contrary to Timothy's father, who was a Greek and a pagan who worshipped idols. They did right, though Timothy's father did Wrong. And 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. A confirmation of this is in verses 14 and 15. 3, 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. There he says what Lois and Eunice taught their son, Timothy. The scriptures, the sacred writings, salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Salvation and then also sanctification, verses 16 and 17. Contrary, even if it caused conflict between Timothy's father and Timothy's mother. 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter Chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and 
respectful behavior. And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The wives in verse 1 are to be submissive to their husbands, even if they are disobedient to the word. What he means there, not when they're asking you, demanding of you to sin. Let's go to the casino, wife. Let's, let's go to the nightclub, wife. Let's go get drunk, wife. When the husband says that, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, even if the husband is an unbeliever and he lives a wicked life, then you are still to submit to him whenever it's right to submit to him. You should submit to him. You can't say, well, you're an unbeliever, so I'm not going to listen to a single thing you say. And meantime, I'm going to nag you. I'm going to pester you. I'm going to goad you and poke you. He's saying, don't do that. And how do they usually do it? Both with their mouth and in the marital bed. Their mouth, that is, they run their mouth to nag, and he says here, without a word. And then in the marital bed, by withholding that which is due in marriage. And meantime, what do they do? They try to persuade and they try to attract by their cosmetics and clothing. Again, he meant, uh, this is mentioned in Scripture, verses 3 and following. But... It should be godliness that the disobedient husband sees. Godliness, godliness, godliness. Submission and obedience. Submission, verse 1, obedience, verse 6. And respect for the husband. Without being frightened by any fear. Then on the other hand, the husband. The husband, likewise, should live with his wife in an understanding way. Be reasonable with your wife. Be reasonable, whether it's with the cooking, with the, with the cleaning, with the children, with organization. If the husband is a man who likes to be neat and clean, he always likes to be that way. If he was that way as a single man, and there are a few men like that, when they get married and the wife is not like that, we're not talking about a messy and dirty and filthy wife. We're talking about a wife who doesn't have the exact same standard as the husband. What should the husband do? Let up on the wife. Don't be pressing her on all these matters all the time, constantly, day and night, because she doesn't meet your expectations. Especially when children are born, it's more difficult to maintain things around the house. So the husband should live with his wife in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Under what threat? So that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers may not be hindered.
The husband also might have had, during his single days, much free time to pursue his hobbies. Two or three or four hobbies. Yes, athletics, hunting, fishing, whatever the, the hobbies might be. Carpentry, whatever he, his hobbies might be. But then now that he's married and now he, that he has children, he can't do it the way he used to do it. He's got to back off. He's got to decrease the amount of time that he does all those kinds of activities because he has to give attention to his wife and his children. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about not having any leisure time and we're not talking about having a wife who is very messy and dirty and chaotic. We're not talking about that either. We're talking about the right biblical, reasonable balance to the situation. But when it's out of balance, that's when conflicts arise. It should be in balance to avoid conflict. One final passage that will actually be in 1 John, but remind us of the very beginning of the Bible, where we started. We started in the book of Genesis. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, 11 and 12. 1 John 3, 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Abel is our first example of a martyr. A martyred saint, a martyred Christian, a martyred prophet. That is, put to death for his righteousness. He had the righteousness of Christ, and Cain, his own blood brother, murdered him. Cain belonged to Satan, therefore he retaliated and murdered his own brother. This reminds us that our enemies, even in our families, are not just people who mean well. They're not just ignorant people. They're not people with the best of intentions. They have good intentions. They are Christians, of course. They are Christians. It's not like that. When they persecute like this, when they do things like this, they not only murder, but hatred that leads to murder. When they have this kind of hate and loathsome attitude towards us, they really belong to whom? It says in verse 12. The evil one. That's why they're not loving us the way they ought to love us. They belong to Satan, the evil one. Be ready for it. It's common. That's what Jesus meant. These are the doctrines of Christ, based on Matthew 10, 34 to 39. Let's follow Christ no matter who is our obstacle, even if it's our loved ones. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.